Thank you, Charity. Please take our Bibles this morning to Psalm 100. Let's turn together in the Word of God to Psalm 100 this morning. Let's direct our attention to a unique psalm that lends itself, Lord, particularly to this time of year as we have given our time and attention with with specific focus to thanksgiving. So we're taking a break for our normal study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and I want us to look at Psalm 100. And let's read the Word of God together, verses 1 through 5. It's a short psalm, but it is a weighty and powerful psalm instructing the people of God. Psalm 100, verse 1, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name, for the Lord is good, and His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. The title of the message this morning is a thanksgiving psalm, or a psalm of thanksgiving. As we think about in the Word of God, chapters that are unique and important, yes, in one sense, all of God's Word in its totality is important and inspired and errant. We, we know that, we trust in that. But that is not to say that there are some verses, some chapters that the child of God doesn't need to, that need, they need to commit it to memory. They need to rehearse it. They need to meditate in it. They need to marinate in it. They need to be instructed by it weekly, daily, monthly, yearly, you name it. In fact, Spurgeon has a whole commentary or a whole section in his book on instructions to my students, to the seminarians that he taught. There are some verses that need to be taught uh, so many times a year. One of those verses was the extra mile Christian, those who love the Lord and serve the Lord, and yet they go the extra mile as Jesus instructs, just to give such an example of a text. As we look at Psalm 100 this morning, I would submit to us at Grace Church as the pastor here that Psalm 100 is a a psalm that we have not looked at yearly. I think I've only preached from it once since I've been here, probably the first year that I was here as pastor, and it was on a Sunday evening. And our church uh, is not entirely new, but has grown demonstrably since then. And so our people, as, as far as one heart, one mind, one soul, together, we, we haven't heard it in that sense. But even if you have, even if you have committed Psalm 100 to memory, friends, let me just exhort you, this is a psalm that gives instruction for us in our love of God and our service for Him that we need to visit again and again and again. In fact, I'm grateful to one of my Sunday school teachers who taught me on Sunday night children's choir at the church that I attended growing up. And one of the things that she would do regularly was take scripture passages and make her own song to go with them. And uh, right, I'm not going to do it right here, right now, but I could sing to you Psalm 100 as she taught us to sing it, uh, to sing it together. And as I was preparing, the Lord just brought that to my memory. It, it just, I was reminded of it. It just kind of hit me from uh, the side. And I sung it to myself as I was sitting there, and I couldn't believe it that I could still sing a song that I learned when I was Suzanne's age, and I could commit it to memory. We're grateful for those people who help us learn the Word of God, but particularly commit it to memory. As we look at Psalm 100, this is a choice text 
that the people of God should rehearse to ourselves again and again. As you see the title there, Psalm 100, it is a psalm of praise. Your translation may render it. Ours here using the New King James as a psalm of thanksgiving. It is a unique psalm in this sense in that it gives prescriptions for the service and worship of God to the people of God. In fact, it is intended to have a special emphasis in the life of God's people. If we were to go to Israel this morning or to be within a group of of people who spoke Hebrew, we would hear a word often, and that word would be tadah. It would be the word that we would hear again and again because it is the word that they used to say, thank you, todah. You give them a drink, a plate of food, todah. In Hebrew, from what I understand, what I've been told, from what I've read, this is their word for thank you. And this psalm is a psalm of thanks. The word and the act of thanksgiving is tied together to this psalm as it gives particular instruction to the people of God. Psalm 100 serves us to instruct us in something, and that something is the heart and the art of worshiping and serving God. Again, Psalm 100 serves to instruct us in the heart and in the art of worshiping God. In fact, we see it taught to us in the form of divine commands. You could say divine imperatives. And if we're honest, if we are intellectually honest, if we know our society and our culture today, we are not necessarily a people that like commands. We resist them. We don't like it when people tell us to do something. We don't even like it when our designated boss at work tells us to do something, even though we know that that's his job to tell us to do things, right? But if ever there's been a society that does not like imperatives, do this, commanding language, I would say that here in our current moment, we certainly, as a people, as a nation, globally, do not care for divine imperatives or commands. But I would also remind us, while we are aware of that in the sense of our current cultural moment, we're not of the culture. We are the people of God. We are sheep who have a shepherd, and shepherds give commands. I'm speaking mainly of our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Yahweh, our God. So in Psalm 100, we see not only commands, but really seven, we're not going to use these as our headings, but seven key commands that tell us how we're to worship God. In fact, you could say this, Psalm 100 is the focus of worshiping the Lord. In fact, 15 times we see the pronouns he, him, or his name, formally God, the Lord, here in this psalm. And so what we find is that God clearly expects us as his people to love him to worship Him, to serve Him. One author has said it like this, Worship is the engine that drives the church. Worship is the engine that drives the church. Now, if that sounds odd to you, it may. I recognize that. But let me just unpack that just a little bit more in our introduction here. Worship is the engine that drives the church. Do not limit worship this morning to songs. Do not think of the worship service that we have are partaking in at this very moment this morning and compartmentalize it into what we've done up until now. It includes that, but it is not limited to that. Worship is the engine that drives the church, and our worship in the life of a believer, in the life of a Christian, is expressed in singing, in praying, in giving, in the reading of Scripture among the assembly. 
in preaching. What I'm doing right now is worship. The worship is not now we've left that and now we're on to the preaching as if it's boring and hopefully it is not boring, as if it's just something that is set aside at the very end and we now set aside some, some time for the preaching. By the way, in most churches, you can tell they think it's boring and how much time they allot to it. They, they tack it on, the preaching at the very end, 15 minutes of a self-humanistic type of sermon, and it tells and expresses what they really think about preaching. I'm grateful for a church like Grace Church that allots plenty of time uh, to preaching. And I, I'm glad to tell you that I cannot quite even see that what time it is on the clock, but I'll know I'm done when I'm done. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Here's the point I'm trying to nail down. Worship is the engine that drives the church, and worship is all of life. It is comprehensive. It includes everything we've done here this morning. And friends, it also includes those who are serving Him in the nursery this morning, those who have cleaned the buildings, have facilitated an atmosphere of worship to where we are free to not focus on other things around us, but we have been, things have been prepared for us to be able to focus our attention upon the Lord. And I'm grateful for all of that. Well, this morning, as we walk briefly through Psalm 100, we're going to frame our thoughts around these three headings. Number one, we are called to approach God. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, we are called by the psalmist to apprehend God. We see this in verse 3. And then thirdly, we are called to adore God in verses 4 and 5. Number one, we are called to approach God. We are commanded to approach God, verses 1 and 2. Number two, we're called to apprehend God, verse 3. And then number three, we are called to adore God in verses 4 and 5. First of all, I want us to note, number one, we are called to approach God. Notice with me in our text, verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful shout, a noise to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Right off the bat, we have three brief, fast imperatives. Make, serve, come. Here we have the instruction of the Holy Spirit and the authority of God's Word, the Lord Himself, telling us as His people to do these things with our hearts, with our bodies. How do we approach God? Well, according to the psalmist here, how do we come before Him? We do it, notice it, cognitively and emotionally. In fact, I'm afraid sometimes we, we get out of balance of what the Scripture teaches us. Sometimes I think we, we move too far to the cognitive sphere, to the neglect of the emotional or affectional sphere. Then there are others who, by nature of personality or uh, tradition or whatever, uh, overextend and they s- s- go over to the affectional, emotional sphere to the neglect of the cognitive sphere. What we mean? Truth. Truth which informs our minds. Truth which speaks to the heart. And a response of God's people in repentance and faith and joy. That's what we mean by cognitive and emotional affections. So how do we approach our God? Well, in these commands we find that it's with our hearts and it's with our minds. Notice here in our text, We are to approach God. We are to acclaim Him with joy. Notice verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all ye lands. Here we have a command by the psalmist to shout. Now, some of you say, I don't like shouting. Well, that may be true. But here, nevertheless, we have a command to shout. This is a, a response, a verbal response of the mind and of the heart of jubilation. 
This is a shout and a response of joy. Now, many of you, yesterday, had we been in your living room with you, watching the game and listening to you cheer on your team, whether you realized it or not, what you did was you shouted. Maybe not all of you, but maybe most of us. When your team did something good, your team did something well, you couldn't hide the expression of your joy. It was a shout of jubilation. Now, you get the idea. We, we are evangelists. We're brand evangelists. There's products and things that we're devoted to. We've shopped from L.L. Bean all of our life. We get the catalog, and we order those flannels. Every winter, we are an L.L. Bean guy, or maybe you're an Apple or a Mac or a PC person, or maybe you shop at Kroger. No, you shop at Food City. You get the idea. We are people who love our stuff and our things and our traditions and our brands, and we are loyal to them. In fact, we'll tell you all about it if you'll let us. What about the Lord? Here, the psalmist calls us to acclaim Him with joy. Make a joyful shout, not just for your team. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It's not, I'm not trying to prod you or rib you. What I'm trying to say is, is our heart has no problem delighting audibly in what we rejoice in. And here the psalmist says, acclaim him with joy. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. Why? Because he reigns. We shout because we have much to praise the Lord for. We shout because he reigns. Psalm 98 verse 1. Turn there with me just briefly. Psalm 98 in verse 1. The psalmist says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known His salvation and His righteousness. He has revealed in the sight of the nations. Shout because of that. Verse 3, He has remembered His mercy and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout. Notice here verse 4. This is a command not only for the people of God to shout. Psalm 98, the psalmist here in verse 4 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises Sing to the Lord with a harp, and with a harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout joyfully before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in all of its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for He is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity." What Psalm 98 is telling us is that God's creative order is shouting joyfully. The, the rivers are clapping their hands. The oceans are singing His praises. But what of the redeemed people of God this morning? Now, if you're suffering with a cold, do not hear what I'm saying as an agenda towards you. And I promise you, I have no idea who has the cold this morning, whose nasal cavities are stopped. You're suffering from a cough and you desire to sing with us this morning. Do not be the curmudgeon that comes up to me to, to let me know why you think I was preaching to you this morning. I don't know that. And I'm not even talking about this morning, although it includes this morning. Here's what I'm trying to say. God's creative order, by design, gives Him glory. The rivers clap their hands. The animals shout joyfully before Him. And what of the redeemed? I'm afraid that far too often the redeemed have lost their song. The redeemed have forgotten all that is theirs in the gospel of, of Christ. Illustration is given that when the king of England used to be the queen, and now we're back to the king, when King Charles is in his castle, the royal standard flag flies high. 
And it lets all know, all the people in the land, all the people in London there know that King Charles is in his residence. He's present there. What is the flag for the Christian? The flag for the Christian is joy in the heart. Joy in the heart of a believer is the flag that the Christian waves and flies that lets the world know that Jesus is on his throne. Not only that God reigns on high, but that we are the redeemed. And let the, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. A.W. Tozer says this, Worship is the missing jewel in the church. God wants worshipers before workers. Do not miss that. God wants worshipers before workers. Indeed, the only acceptable workers are those who have learned the heart of worship. If you were to interview most people, they would tell you all that they do for the Lord. But I want to remind us all as the pastor of Grace Church that being busy for God is not necessarily godly. Or another way of saying it is that busyness does not equate godliness or activity does not equate spirituality. If we've not learned to worship the Lord, privately, in the secret place. We don't know what it is to worship Him with God's people. In fact, you can say it like this, what is it we bring together before the corporate assembly? What we bring is our personal worship that we've been praising Him and living Him, living for Him all throughout the, the moments of our week. And we bring those sacrifices of praise together with other people who bring their sacrifices of praise together, and together we offer up those sacrifices of praise before the Lord. Well, we acclaim Him with joy, Notice secondly, verse 2 there, it says, we adore him with gladness. And this is a lot of commanding language. I don't know if I like this type of imperatives, Legrand. Well, get used to it, because here the psalmist says it again. Notice what he says, serve the Lord, not period. Now, we'd almost like it if somebody would say that. Go ahead and just give it to me. Go ahead and just let me have it. I need, yes, I need to serve the Lord. In fact, in the new year, I am going to work on how can I how can I improve my, my service for the Lord? But that's not what the psalmist says. Notice what he says. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Here's the idea that worship and service go intrinsically together. To serve the Lord is to worship the Lord. Another way of saying it is in worship, there is service. Exodus chapter 12, verse 25, God speaking to his people says this, it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And what is this service? Well, that passage there in Exodus 12 is the instructions of the Passover. Why they observed the Passover. Why should they continue to do it? It is a service of worship rendered unto the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul, giving instructions to the church, Reminds us as the body, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Service and worship. What does all this mean? It means we worship God by serving him. We worship God by serving God, and we worship him with gladness. Now, I will not take the time to do a survey of this text this morning in Scripture that talks about, again and again, a theme that runs in not only doing the right thing, but how we do the right thing. But I'll just go ahead and state it in a summary statement. Our God is not interested in that we worship Him and serve Him alone, but Scripture is clear that He would rather us not worship Him and serve Him if our heart's not in it. 
So don't hear what I'm not saying. If you come here on a Lord's Day morning and you're struggling with your heart, here's the idea. Your heart will typically, for the redeemed at least, your heart will typically follow your feet. Listen, there, we all know there, we come in on certain days and we're down. It, it, it could be physiological, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual. But the good news for most of the redeemed is that we leave happier <laughs> than when we came. Amen? Truly, that's my experience. I know it's got to be yours. Well, as we look here at this text, Spurgeon says this, he, in his commentating on this text, he says, a joyful God is glorified by his joyful servants. I love that. A joyful God is glorified by his joyful servants. Well, we serve God in our everyday living, in our everyday tasks, when we serve him joyfully and cheerfully in our hearts. In fact, you could say it like this. This is a transformative reality to the Christian. This is what separates the Christian worshiper. This is what separates the people of God in that the entirety of our lives, the entirety of our days can be an act of praise and worship to God if we do it joyfully, if we do it with thanksgiving, if we do it as unto the Lord, if we do it with a cheerful, thankful heart and attitude. God desires this. God delights in this. As we saw, God doesn't just want givers. He delights in cheerful givers. In fact, if you study the history of God dealing with his people, much of their judgment came from two things. Number one, unbelief. For example, in Deuteronomy 28, unbelief, but also because his people failed to serve him with faith and thanksgiving. They, they had unbelief, lack of faith, but with that also a lack of joy and thanksgiving. In fact, this lack of thanksgiving brought about God's hand of judgment upon them time and time again. Well, again, how do we worship the Lord? We worship Him by serving Him with gladness. Listen, friends, you've heard the phrase, everything you see in the secular world and the self-help books and all of that, all of them are most, mostly rip-offs of, of Scripture. And you'll hear the phrase, everything changes. When you look at life, instead of saying, I have to, everything changes when you say, I get to. And it's true. But the Christian knows this above everyone else. We get to serve the Lord, our God. Well, notice a, a third brief thing here. We, we are commanded that we acknowledge Him with singing. Verse 2 there, it says, Come before His presence with singing. Now, this parallels what has come before. Here, the psalmist is using parallelism to state his instruction. Come before His presence with singing. This is speaking to the corporate aspect, the corporate life of the church. Psalm 95, 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. There's an idea that singing and thanksgiving are one and the same here in Psalm 100 and other psalms. To come before the Lord with thanksgiving is expressed in singing. And to come before the Lord with singing is to equate with thanksgiving. We're singing with grateful and thankful hearts to the Lord. Now, some of you, when you start thinking about singing, you think of it as something removed from your discipleship. And that's tragic. It is. And some of you, when you think about singing, you think, well, I don't sing. Some of you, when you think about singing, you say, well, I didn't grow up in a singing home. 
I wasn't given lessons. So singing is something like the skilled people do, or singing is something that the, the choral club at school, that's what they did. If you sang, you were in the, the singing club. Or, you know, you get the idea. We think in compartmentalized ways like that. And I would just instruct all of us, hear the heart of your pastor this morning. God's people are a singing people. Music is a vital part of our worship. It's not all of our worship, but it's a vital part of our worship. And here, we are commanded to come before His presence with singing. In fact, the psalmist has already told us, shout jubilantly, worship happily, sing joyfully. It's a question for us to consider, isn't it? Christian here this morning, when you sing, do you sing? And I don't know, I promise you I don't have an agenda. I sit on the front row and I look forward, I can't see a one of you. And I don't know what you're doing when you're singing, and you know it. But I have a question for you. Do you sing? Do you sing joyfully? Those are two different questions. Number one, do you sing? And number two, do you sing with joy? Singing is the normative act of a redeemed people. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Singing is one of the joyful acts of a redeemed people. It is a normative act to repeat His mercies in our song as we sang this morning. Repeat His mercies in your song. Repeat His mercies in your song. In fact, many of our problems would be answered, remedied in our hearts, our souls, if we sang louder than we complained. If we sang, and then if we sang louder than we're tempted to grumble, as we're tempted to complain. And I want to say to us here this morning as your pastor, singing is not just for the children in the children's choir. Singing is not just for the women. Singing is for the whole of God's people. So men, hear this. Men, lead your marriages. Men, lead your homes. Lead your families in singing to the Lord. Again, I'll go back to verse 1. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful shout to the Lord. And if you can't sing, surely you can whistle. And if you don't know how to whistle, let me encourage you, learn how to whistle. But whatever you have, offer it as a sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, you could take this verse and say it like this. The sacrifice of singing, don't miss this, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of thankful heart and singing ensures that God's people never become before Him empty-handed. You may not have money to give in the offering this morning. We get it. But friend, you are not empty-handed. Offer to the Lord your sacrifice of praise that comes from a thankful heart. By the way, the gift of singing is a gift of God that is not left for just Bob Dylan alone. And it's not just left for Leonard Skinner alone. And it's not just left for the oldies and the classic rock and the, the bluegrass. And it's not just for the skilled musicians and artisans. It's not just for them. Listen, music comes from God. Zechariah 2, our God is a singing God. He sings over us. He sings over us as his people, even as we're here this morning. And our, as Spurgeon would said, a cheerful God deserves cheerful servants. A singing God deserves singing redeemed people. Or a people who are redeemed sing to him. Well, number one, we're called to approach God, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, number two, we are called to apprehend him. Verse 3, look there with me in our text. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. 
Now, of the seven key commands and imperatives in Psalm 100, this is the centerpiece. In fact, there's an inversion. It builds up to this one, and then it reduces down again. Here we have really what all of our instructions and imperatives are rooted in, and it's this understanding that we are called to apprehend God. That is to say, we are called to know Him, to know Him intimately. We are to have an awareness and an understanding of God. It's why we preach expositionally here at Grace to give the Word of God to the people of God so that they can know their God. So we look at this command, it supports and answers really the why. If we were to ask, well, why should we do that of the first three commands? This is the answer. In fact, you could say verse 3 supports verses 1 and 2. And then just by an exegetical way, verse 5 supports verses 3 and 4. Just for those of you who are taking notes, if we'd like to look at that later. Verse 3 answers the commands of verses 1 and 2. Verse 5 answers the commands of verses 3 and 4. So here we're called in this command with a cognitive call. Well, how do we do this? Well, notice in verse 3, to know that He alone is our God. Notice the verse. It says, know that the Lord, He is God. That is to say that our God is exclusive. There is no God like our God. We make a distinction with our God with a capital G among the other gods, little g, that men worship, serve, that have no eyes or hands or power. Know that He alone is our God. That is to say, He is exclusively alone in His glory. And we are to know this. We are to know our God. That is to say, it should be normative in the church, and I'm glad to say it is here at Grace, that we should love the attributes of God. We should learn about our God. We should learn about His perfections because when we know who He is, we can worship Him rightly. The truth of God helps us to know Him. So true worship is experiential with our exclusive God. Notice this word means to be intimately familiar. No, be intimately familiar that the Lord, He is God. This is intelligent communication. It involves our minds and not just our uncontrolled emotions. So many times you can go into a worship gathering. It's been a long time since I've been in one where it's driven emotionally, but when I was in college, I had to get invited to go to all kinds of campus ministries and Bible studies. I had lots of friends. They went to different things, and hey, come, and the invitations were plenteous, and hey, let's go to this. And it was our joy to do so, but a lot of them are emotionally driven and light on the truth. But here we see that we're called to both worship the Lord experientially, emotionally, but that our minds are to inform this, to know who we're worshiping. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is what the psalmist is saying, know that God. Know that He is God. Know that there is no other God like Him, that He is Yahweh. He is the Lord, and there is no other. So, how do we do this? Cognitively, come before Him and know, apprehend your God. Know that He is God. There is so much here. Know that He is your Creator. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. To who and what the Lord makes and creates, He owns. He directs and He guides. He has every right to call us to worship Him. 
we have not made ourselves. Now that leads us to, secondly, He alone is our Creator there. Verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. He has the rights to us. He is Lord over us. And He calls us to worship Him. But friends, the best part is still coming. It's here, verse 3, notice what it says. He alone, the psalmist says, is our shepherd. He's not just our God. He's not just created us. In the language of Psalm 23, the Lord is, say it with me, my shepherd. One more time. The Lord is my shepherd. I hope He is. I hope He's your shepherd. And if He is, the psalmist here bids you, calls you to worship God. Why? Because He alone is our shepherd. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. One commentator says this, by creation He has made us, by redemption He has saved us. So this language, He is our shepherd, points to His lordship, that He's reserved us, He has preserved us for Himself, and He has preserved for Himself a people from every tongue, nation, and tribe for His glory. Why are, why are we praying for Venezuela this morning? Excuse me, we're not just praying for Venezuela, we're not uh, just turning the, throwing up a picture of a map on, on the screen or taking a globe and say, there, South America, Venezuela. We're praying for Venezuela this morning. We're not just praying for Venezuela this morning. And spell the word out. We're not praying for the letters. No, no, we're praying for the people that are there that represent the, every nation, every tongue, and every tribe that Scripture tells us that the Lord is calling to Himself. A tribe, a bride for His glory. So, he alone is our shepherd. How do we worship Him? We worship Him by growing in the knowledge of who He is. And that our God is not a God far off and removed. That our God is a God who has bought us. That has shed His own blood for us. He has paid the purchase price, the ransom price for us, His people. Now we could just stop right there and say, church... We have much to be thankful for, do we not? This is how the truth, this is how the Word of God stirs our affections. This is why we must be in the Word. This is why the truth must renew our minds. If we're driven by our affections alone, apart from the Scriptures, friends, that is, that is faulty. And that leads down in a, a crooked path. And a path that enslaves to where we're enslaved by our feelings. But when we let the truth inform our affections we are a people who give glory to God both in mind and in heart and in soul as the truth of God transforms our thinking and calls us to understand who he is well number one we're called to approach God secondly we were called to apprehend God now lastly number three we are called to adore God again notice verses four and five enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Again, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. The command here is be thankful unto him. You don't, I don't like that. We're, we're gospel people here. You don't command. Listen, God does. He commands us to remember his truth. He commands us to remember the appropriate, rightful response of coming before Him by faith, fixing our eyes upon Him. What I was trying to say there a second ago is in our wonderful reclaiming of the gospel, one of the, one of the downsides is that people, um, and I want to be careful here lest I get off track, if you say anything authoritatively, commandingly, imperatives, commands, 
people who claim the gospel-centered language, they are incomplete in their understanding of the full orbness of the gospel. They do not understand the totality of revealed truth and doctrine. Here, listen, we are called to be thankful to Him and to bless His name, and it's through the gospel that we can. The psalmist says, Soul, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you gloomy? Why are you filled with doubt? Why are, why are you the way you are? And it's through rehearsing of truth. It's through the rehearsing of the work of God and the commands of God that we find our hearts instructed and lifted up and able to serve Him both body, heart, and soul. Well, we're called to adore God, enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endures to all generations. What we see here in this call to worship God are these commands. And the psalmist then gives three reasons for the totality of all the commands. Notice there with me before we walk through this. Notice in verse 5. Okay, it's almost as if he anticipates the why questions. It's almost he anticipates the, the, the why. And so he gives, concludes the psalm with three bullet point reasons. For the Lord is good. Do you need any more reasons than that? For the Lord is good. Let's go home. That's all we need to give. Well, but he doesn't stop there. He says, and secondly, his mercy is everlasting. Okay, that's, that's enough right there. Well, but then he adds a third. And his truth endures to all generations. So what is the psalmist doing? Well, he's already told us to know our God, which we talked about knowing his attributes, knowing his perfections. Well, here the psalmist gives us three so that we can know our God, know him experientially, know him cognitively, and then worship him. He just gives us three. His truth, the truth of God, the mercy of God, and the goodness of God. So we're called here in verses 4 and 5 to adore him. Well, how is it that we are to adore him? We're to care about him in our hearts. We are to, notice here verse 4, we are to enter into his gates, not period. But we're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. If it sounds like we're repeating ourselves, it's because we are. It's because the psalmist is. This is parallelism. He continues to give a truth, state a truth, and repeat a truth in a different way. Listen, the command of God's people is not just to come in corporate worship together. And yet for many people, that's the extent of what they will do this morning. Check. Went there. Did there. Went and did that. Check, 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 check. We went and entered his gates this morning. But it's to miss it. And friends, to miss the joy is to miss it all. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving. We enter into his courts with praise. Why should we do this? Well, the psalmist here does not leave us to wonder. Here, he shepherds our hearts. He causes our hearts to rehearse the gospel to ourselves, to know God and to rehearse his immutable attributes to our fearful minds and hearts. He directs our gaze and our attention to enter His gates with thanksgiving and enter into His courts with praise. And that's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid far too often we come to the, the, the physical location and we think about people. We think about Mr. So-and-so and what they've done for the church. And we think about Miss So-and-so and what she does for the church. But all of our thinking is, just, is horizontal and our thinking needs to be vertical. It's not about this building, but we are the assembled people who gather for the King. And it's His courts. And it's His praise that we are to give. It's His gates. It's His courts. 
And so the case I'm making before you, church, is it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how your week has gone. According to what Psalm 100 teaches us is that God's people have a medicine, a balm for the soul to prepare their hearts to worship their king. Well, again, the psalmist anticipates, well, how and why should we enter his gates with thanksgiving? And how and why should we enter into his courts with praise? And the psalmist gives us those answers. First of all, first of the three answers, notice with me in the text, verse 5, because he is good. Listen, our God is not just a good God. Our God is the good God. Do you believe that? To those who believe that, it affects everything that they do. If you feel like God is not done right by you, that affects everything that you do. If you feel like that you have a part in your sanctification and you have a part and your works righteousness is helping to save you, don't think for a second that that's not going to affect your worship of how you serve the Lord. Many think that God's not been fair to them. Many are like the older brother of the prodigal son who never left the father's side, and yet they are resentful and bitter against the father because they don't feel like that he has been good to them. Let the record of Scripture teach us this morning and remind us, show us our need to repent if that is indeed us and how we feel. And I would just say all of us feel that at some point. There's not a one person in this room who at times doesn't lose sight of it all. We have to teach ourselves and come back to Scripture and be preached to by the authoritative Word of God. Well, why should we enter His gates with thanksgiving and enter into His courts with praise? Well, because He is good. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Now, literally, we have been tasting and seeing that the Lord is good this week, haven't we? James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father above, Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or shadow of changing with him. Friends, God is good. He is the good God and extends beyond turkey and ham and casseroles. Although, thank God that it includes those. And that it also includes pecan pie and cherry pie and apple pie and you get the rest. Oh, taste. And see that the Lord is good. Psalm 106.1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good! Exclamation point. The tenor of the text is jubilation, shouting praise. And I'll tell our kids regularly, listen, we'll cheer for our team, and that's good. But may we not cheer for our team louder than we cheer for God. Now, that sound, may sound trite to you, and I don't mean it to be. But truly, in our love and our worship and our praise, may the tenor, may the melody of our life truly be bigger, greater, and better than any, any good gift that God could afford. And sometimes we have to re-preach this to ourselves. Uh, we're, we haven't perfected this by any means. But we remind ourselves of it often. Psalm, one of, Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. Well, the second reason the psalmist gives for why we should do this, notice, is not only because he's good, but because he's loving. Verse 5, his mercy. His mercy is everlasting. This word for mercy is his hesed love. That is to say, his steadfast love. God's mercy is his not giving us what we deserve. We, church, let me just remind us, as the blood-bought people of God, we are those who deserve God's wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. 
But God has purchased us us by His blood. He has withheld what we are due, and He's given us what we are not due in His grace. His mercy is His withholding what is due to us. This is an expression, His mercy is revealed in what the Hebrew calls His hesed love, His covenant love, His decisive love. When God sets His love upon you, He will never change. And church, I'm here to tell you, He's bought you with a price. He will never abandon you. God has bought you, He's purchased you, and that's to never change. We understand this heart of the gospel, the doctrine of adoption. It's even declared and written to the laws of our land that those who are adopted, adoption cannot be undone. You don't get to change your mind and say, okay, we, we want to we give this one back. That's the law of the land. Listen, the law of the land points and mirrors to the heart of our God. Those whom He adopts, He will never cast away. We are the blood-bought children of God. This is His covenant love. This is His merciful love. Psalm 63.3, one of my favorite verses. Because of your loving kindness, O God, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. And I will lift up my hands in your name. Notice how the psalmist there, I will bless you while I live. Listen, the need for preaching will pass away. The need for sharing the gospel will pass away in glory. So many of the things, the rhythms, and the disciplines of grace that we pursue here in this life will all dissipate, but one will not, and it's worship. So the psalmist says, I will worship you while I live, and the implication is, is and when I am alive in glory, I will continue for, throughout all the ages to worship you. Why? According to Psalm 63, because your steadfast covenant, hesed, merciful love is better than life. Life? You mean like more than sports? Sure. Better than life, you mean more than marriage and the benefits of marriage? Sure. Life, you mean like friendship and travel and new things and all of it. The steadfast love of the Lord, hesed, loving kindness, hesed mercy is better than life. For all these things, our lips shall praise you. Well, the last reason we've seen he is good, he's loving. In verse 5, he is faithful. God delivers on his promises. Notice what he says, and his truth endures to all generations. Does it? Sure it does. You say, how? Well, do you have the time? But I'll point you to one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Many commentators and theologians believe that Psalm 100 is purely fulfilled in the person and work of the Christ. And person of work of Christ, and I, I am among them. Look to Jesus. He's faithful. His truth endures to all generations. God has sent His Son. His Son, John 14, declared to His disciples, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. His truth endures to all generations. I would just tell you, the most precious possession that you and I have is truth. We've never needed truth more than we need it now. Truth in a world that's deceived, in a world that's blinded, in a world that is stumbling headlong into hell on the broad path of of destruction. We are those who God has given His truth to in the form of His Son. He's given us the totality of His Word. We treasure it. We value it. It's our joy and our privilege to worship Him by His truth that endures through all generations in the form of His Word and His Son. Well, in conclusion, we've 
exposited the text this morning, just a brief application points before we conclude this morning. Number one, what the psalmist has taught us from Psalm 100 is this. The volume of worship is loud. And I don't mean in the sense of decibels. I don't mean in the sense that starting next Sunday, we need to crank things up in here. That's not my point. But what we mean is it involves us. It means it involves the totality of our creative persons. It means that we offer our hearts, our minds, and certainly includes to some degree some measure of volume, our voices, right? It does. If you don't like that, I'll just give you an example. What if we came in here next Lord's Day morning and everything was way down low? Let's say we worship the Lord like this. And I walked up here and I said, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Let's worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. And then we all stood to sing. That would be incredibly annoying. So let's not act like it doesn't involve volume. It does. But it's not limited to that. It's an expression of life. It's heard not just you know, 12 o'clock on Sunday morning. Or I guess the way to say it is it doesn't end there. It's a song that is not relegated or contained within the corporate worship of these four walls. But the song of the redeemed is loud. It's an anthem. And by the way, if you don't like it, then you're not going to like heaven. Because heaven's full of it. I'll never forget taking a group of students to a field trip where we went around Birmingham. And we looked at different types of architecture. And then we looked at how the architecture was informed and how it was used in the art of worship among different religions. So we went to some temples. We went to some different venues and we were able to observe their holy days. We were able to observe their services. And it struck me, this was not the aim of what I was looking for, but as we went to some of those different places, in almost all of them, but not all of them, things were loud. In fact, I would say in one sense, louder than how we pray louder than how we recite scripture. Other practices will yell their recitations, yell their prayers, and it's jarring. But at the same time, there's no song. There's no redemptive song. There's no congregational song. There's, there's no corporate song. I would say like this, quite like ours. To, to just put it one specific way, it's not only is our worship loud, but listen, it is unified in the hearts of many. We don't listen to one alone do it. In many, there's a priest or someone who's just recanting and going through the motions and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
just for us here in Kingston, Tennessee, but the call to worship is global. That's what the psalmist is telling us. The call to worship is global. And there's coming a day where every tongue, nation, and tribe will offer up their global tongues before the Lord in praise. And I will tell you this morning, they're already doing that. The rehearsal is our, we're rehearsing here and all around the globe. The church, the called out ones who've been saved by His grace and bought by His blood, they're doing their choir practice this morning as they prepare to worship their King for all eternity. Thirdly, we've seen, according to this psalm, that the spirit of worship is joyful and thankful. The spirit of worship is joyful and thankful. It's not enough that we worship, but how we worship is demonstrably of more importance than the art of worship itself. How we worship, joyfully, thankfully. And then lastly, the scope of worship is total. What we find here from Psalm 100 is that it involves our our minds, it involves our hearts, it involves our will. We are the song. We sing to the Lord. We give our whole self over as we look to Him and we sing with our persons and our personalities. We sing according to His truth and we offer up, excuse me, we're we're not the song. He is the song, but we use all of our body in singing praise and worshiping Him and serving Him and preaching and giving. May the Lord help us as we think about this Psalm 100, a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving. And I want to conclude in this way. Aren't you grateful that as the people of God, that we have someone to thank. That's what thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is that we have a God by whom we can thank, to whom which we can thank. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we need it. And your word is the only power on earth that will show us the truth and reality as it really is. It shows us as we really are. It shows us our sin. It shows us our attitudes. It shows us our spirits. It reproves, it rebukes, it exhorts, and it lifts up. Your word strengthens. Your word gives confidence. Your word takes us as we are, and it builds us up so that we leave differently than when we came. Father, thank you that under your covenant of grace, thank you that in your mercy, Lord, that we don't always come before your presence with singing. We don't always come into your courts with praise. But we are thankful that your spirit, almost always, Lord, allows us and changes us and reforms us to where we leave differently than when we came. We thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy towards us when our attitudes aren't right. Lord, thank you that that you forgive us when our hearts are not filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. You call us to this, remind us of our expressed calling. This is uniquely how we are different than a miserable, depressed world. We are those who fly the flag of joy, of expression in our hearts and on our faces. Not because we're happy in ourselves, but Lord, because our King is on the throne. Our King is home. He's here. He's present. He's here in our hearts. Father, would we shine in this unique way, and would our salt have flavor in this unique way. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.